Amen. Well, good morning again. It's good to see you. I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be taking a break this morning from our exposition of Judges. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 11 through 22 in just a moment. As I said earlier, each year uh, our Southern Baptist Convention emphasizes several important gospel issues throughout the year. Um, that need our careful thought and attention. Issues such as Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, which we uh, spoke to just a few Sundays ago, and today being Racial Reconciliation Sunday. Other Sundays, World Hunger Sunday, that's coming up later in the year, and several other causes, several other issues that, that we try to give attention to, and certainly not every year do we hit these topics in with our, with our denominational calendar. I know that um, We've not done that as of late here, but today we certainly, and this year we're trying to give attention to several of these issues um, that need our thought, that need our attention, that need our response, and certainly this being one of them. I fully realize that the term racial reconciliation is a loaded term. Realize that. In fact, many would even say, don't get caught up in that kind of thing in the church. That's a political issue. That's a social issue. Friends, my growing conviction and my belief is that while it has grown to be a politicized issue, it is ultimately a gospel issue. It is ultimately a gospel issue that needs a clear gospel voice if we are going to see true, lasting reconciliation. A couple of things I want to draw your attention to before we pray and give attention to this word. A couple of books I would recommend. Um, first book is a little book called United, captured by God's vision for diversity by Trillian Newbell. She works for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. And a little book that she's put together with her own experience, an African-American lady who um, just writes really, it's, it's kind of her story uh, throughout this book. And highly, highly recommend this. In fact, we have, I don't know if they're still out there, we had about 10 copies uh, of these available. They're free to you, first come, first serve. So you can run and fight each other afterwards for them. Please take one. Uh, please take one and read it. It's very helpful, guy, very helpful as you, as you follow her story, as she points to scripture. Uh, very, very helpful book in, in along these is, issues. Another book that I recommend that's, that's a little bit more comprehensive is a book called Bloodlines, Race, Cross, and the Christian, a book by John Piper. Forward was written by Tim Keller. Uh, a fantastic book, uh, theological and a historical treatment of these issues that Piper does a phenomenal job with in responding to the issue of race and racial reconciliation from a, not just a Christian perspective, but certainly a clearly gospel perspective. Highly recommend both of these books. This one's more uh, written, again, from uh, personal experience, personal story. Uh, Piper also includes some of his own experience and story in this book, but this was certainly much more theologically uh, focused and, and driven. High, very different books, but very much recommended. So if you want more information about them, I'm happy to share that with you later on. But there are free copies of United out there for you to pick up. Ephesians chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 11 through 22. So the word of the Lord. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, 
who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask for your help. We ask for your wisdom as we consider your word. God, would you give us hearts that are receptive to your truth, receptive, Lord, to issues of our day that need your voice. God, would you teach us this morning and would you transform our lives? Would you transform our church? Would you transform us all for your glory and for the good of one another? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I grew up in Northeast Tennessee, and the county in which I grew up in was a predominantly white community. In fact, I looked up the statistics just the other day. The county I lived in growing up was 97% white. African Americans make up about 1.6 of that population and other minorities even less than that. And so growing up in that kind of environment, in that kind of context, I frankly didn't think much about race, didn't think much about issues related to race and racial reconciliation. I was blessed to go to a school that for our county was the most diverse little elementary school that you could find. It happened to be near where most of the minorities in our community lived, and I kind of lived sort of near that area and went to school growing up with, uh, with black friends and black schoolmates and, and those kinds of things. But the fact of the matter was is that I lived, I breathed in a culture that was a majority white culture. I didn't think beyond that. I didn't think in terms of really anything but whiteness and, and how I as a white man, white young boy would live out my life. And so growing up in that kind of community in some ways isolated me from racial tensions that exist to a greater degree in other communities and certainly in our cities. But that did not mean that racism, racial issues did not exist even in our own community. It most certainly did. As a kid, and even to some extent as a young adult, I had, I had really no idea of the social struggles and injustices that minorities face and still face even long after the abolishment of slavery and ending of Jim Crow. Had no idea, never, never walked in their shoes, never experienced what many of them experienced and many of which experience even today. Even when the racial issues that were associated with Rodney King or O.J. Simpson, when those kind of emerged, I was among those that would say, what's all of the fuss? What's all of the gripe? I mean, slavery and segregation had long passed us by. We've moved on. What's all of the talk about this? I did not understand. What I wasn't so aware of 
was the fact that while we had moved on in many ways, there were still racist roots in our own nation and even in my own heart. Wasn't until I grew older did I realize that the lingering struggle of segregation was clearly with us still. And nowhere was that more apparent than on Sunday mornings. Even though my predominantly white church gathered once a year with our sister Black Baptist Church, once a year we would get together, our worship that Sunday would be much better, much more lively, much more engaged. But the other 51 Sundays, our white church remained white and that black church remained black. And it seemed we were content in our whiteness and the black church was content in their blackness. It was true that Sunday morning was and is still the most segregated hour in America. And yet no one, at least people like me, thought much about it. After all, we had moved on, or had we? You'd have to be an ostrich with its head in the, stand, in the sand not to realize the ongoing racial tension in our society today. It's not just a black and white issue. It also impacts Latinos and Asians and many others. And, and it's not just a one-way street, it's, it's two-way in many ways. And so the tension is there and it continues to intensify. And even in the past few years, we've seen it grow. And yet something I often hear today is that racism is a thing of the past. It's only the media and extremist groups on both sides that are creating such a divide. The problem with that kind of view is that racial tension, while certainly fueled by media and extremist groups on both sides, racial tension was never created by these groups. Racial division did not begin in Ferguson, it did not begin in Charleston. Racial division did not even begin in Jamestown in 1600s. It began long ago in a garden called Eden. And it won't fully be resolved until we experience the new heavens and new earth. So, what does that mean for us in the meantime? Is racial reconciliation even something that we ought to pursue if that's the case? And do we as Christians have a place in that discussion? My quick answer is absolutely we do. The gospel mandates that not only do we seek reconciliation with God, but that we also seek it with one another. Now, while this message today from Ephesians 2 will largely focus on racial issues, everything that I say could certainly be applied to all kinds of differences and otherness. There's a lot of that. Socially, generationally, economically, politically. I mean, there are all kinds of, of, of divisions and, and segregation, if I can use that word, in our society that's, that goes beyond race. So what I'm saying today would apply to all of these circumstances in some way. Really wanna make two points from our text today. They're very simple. We're gonna walk through the text together and then make some application at the end. Two simple points. Point number one is this, division 
in whatever form, and certainly in racial forms, division exists apart from the gospel. No gospel, division is present. Here in Ephesians chapter two in verses one through 10, Paul summarizes the gospel beautifully. In fact, you see there in verses one through three that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Verse four, but God, God made us alive. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so there in the first part of verse, or first part of chapter two, Paul's talking about the reality that all of us white, black, and everything in between, all of us, Jew in this, in this case, Jew and Gentile, the reality that we all face. We are all, like the rest of mankind, Jew and Gentile, by nature, children of wrath, dead in our trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. We know that beautiful overview of the gospel there. And then you come into verses 11 through 22. While Paul is talking about how the gospel is, is, is true for all peoples, in verse 11, he, he kind of zeroes in a bit on, or excuse me, he zeroes in towards the Gentiles. And so now he's, he's addressing the Gentile population of Ephesus. Ephesus was a diverse city, and even the church there reflected that kind of diversity with Jews and Gentiles being there together, which, as we'll see, caused, caused problems, caused issues. Now, you might think through your own, most of you, Gentile lenses, um, some 2,000 years later, you may think, well, what was the big deal? Of course, Jews and Gentiles were together. But, bro but brothers and sisters, this was a big deal. Sometimes I don't think, we're so far removed, I don't think we realize just how divided Jews and Gentiles really were. They hated each other. They despised each other. Just go read sections, you can Google it even, but you go read sections of the Jewish Talmud and just see how, how much Jews hated the Gentiles. They despised one another. So the fact that they were now part of the same community in a congregation was a significant, significant deal. The fact that these two groups of people were in the same church was something relatively new and certainly didn't come without its challenges, likely the reason that Paul is addressing them here in verses 11 through 22. A couple of things that we should see from this division between Jew and Gentile here. First of all, there was a clear spiritual separation. There was a spiritual separation that the Gentiles encountered because of certain things. In fact, in verse 12, he says, remember that you were at one time, or at that time, separated from Christ. He's talking about their pre-conversion state. At that time, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Gentiles were to remember this. At one time, they were separated from Christ. Now, while the Jews also had to trust in Christ for salvation, the pathway for a Gentile to make the same commitment was filled with many more obstacles and challenges because they were cut off, they were alienated, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. They didn't enjoy, the Gentiles didn't enjoy the same privileges that the Jewish people enjoyed. They didn't have the covenant, they didn't have the promises, they didn't know the commandments. They, they didn't know to anticipate this coming 
Messiah, who would also come through the Jewish people. After all, it was with the Jews that God established his covenant. It was with the Jews that God gave his law through which he promised the Messiah. And specifically, we know that the law was given to them as a means to separate them from the surrounding nations so that they would be a holy people pointing to the surrounding nations what it meant to be a holy people serving and loving and worshiping a holy God. Now, they blew it, they blew it big time, but that was the, the intent. And so... The law in that sense became a dividing wall. It, it kind of hedged, hedged in the Jewish people from the Gentiles, and Gentiles being anyone that was not Jewish. We even see this exclusion demonstrated in the temple. If you were to read the Old Testament and see the, the, the setup of the temple, and the heart of the temple was the Holy of Holies where the presence of God was there to said to have dwelled. The closest the Gentiles could get was the outer realms of the temple, and they couldn't go further than what was called the court of the Gentiles. So that alienation and that exclusion was, was not just a reality in the law, it was, it was also visible in the makeup of the temple. And you might say, well, poor Gentiles, not so fast didn't mean that the Gentiles were innocent and unfairly separated from the chosen people of God, not at all. They were quite happy. They were quite happy in their own idolatry and paganism. They were happy with that, they were content with that. They were not just begging the Jewish people to let us in. They were happy idolaters. And so the Gentiles remained separated from Christ spiritually. Now that division created further division, led to more division, which we can talk about in terms of ethnic separation. These were really tied hand in hand together, spiritually and ethnically. I'm just separating them for us to have talking points from this morning. These were really tied together. You couldn't take one from the other. They were also ethnically separated. The privileges the Jews enjoyed resulted in this elitism and pride uh, one of my uh, seminary professors used to, to say about the Jews that they had this chosen people syndrome. They just thought that they were, they were the best and they were the ones that God loved and no one else. And so this division between Jew and Gentile continued to intensify. You see it even here in verse 11. As Paul is saying, remember, and, and he, he could actually begin with verse 12, but he actually goes back in verse 11 and says, remember, it's as if he says, therefore remember, and he was gonna say verse 12. But then he adds that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision. He, he's using uncircumcision as a name that was used in reference to the Gentiles. And that was not a pleasant name to be known by. They were known as the uncircumcision and the Jewish people were the circumcision. Circumcision was an institution established by God as a symbol of his covenant with his people Israel. So circumcision then became a term, became a name used to refer to Israel. It's like a synonym, so the circumcision or the Jews. But uncircumcision became a derogatory term used toward the Gentiles. So Paul uses that here. He's remember, this is who you were. Not just separated from Christ spiritually, you were the uncircumcision. It was an ethnic separation. This division between Jew and Gentile was deep. It was so deep. And even much greater than any of the racial divides we might be aware of today. This was a significant 
significant division. Now though, in verse 13, Paul is reminding them what used to be, what used to be the case, this separation, this being alienated from God because you were alienated from Israel is no longer the case. The, the divides were now eliminated through the gospel. We see it in verse 13, but now this was what used to be you were alienated, you were separated from God, you were separated from Israel, but now in Christ Jesus, you Gentiles who were once far off have been brought near, how? By the blood of Christ. What used to be the case is now eliminated through the gospel. Outside of the gospel, there is separation from God, from others. Outside of the gospel, there is division in all forms, hostility and hatred, but in the gospel, such division is abolished. There is unity. Now, we could go on and on just to, in, just to try to help you understand the, the intensity in which the Jews and Gentiles hated each other. This is why this is such a big deal in Ephesians 2. Such a big deal. So division, point being, is division exists apart from the gospel. You cannot have true reconciliation with God and with others outside of the gospel. That's the point that we're gonna make here now in verse two. Reconciliation is possible only through the gospel. Reconciliation is possible only through the gospel. In fact, I would say that it's accomplished in the gospel. It's accomplished in the gospel. Again, occasionally I will hear people say about issues in our culture today, issue of race, being a social issue. Pastor, why are you even talking about this morning? I'm uncomfortable. Some people right now are, are uncomfortable. In fact, I'm even addressing this. But after all, the gospel is not just reconciling God to man. One of the direct realities of the gospel is the fact that we are reconciled to one another. That's the point. Ephesians chapter two, verses 11 through 22. Yes, the gospel is foremost about your reconciliation with God, but it doesn't stop there. That reconciliation now is, is apparent through reconciliation with other people. And so when you read texts like Ephesians two and even down into chapter three, it seems quite clear that vertical reconciliation with God has a direct relationship with horizontal relation, or reconciliation with man. So therefore, reconciliation is rooted and founded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why, as Christians, we must, not an option, we must address this, we must speak to this with this kind of understanding and, and foundation. Two quick points, I've already said them, I'll just recover, or not recover, but re repeat them a bit here. The gospel does reconcile us to God, clearly. Verses 13 through 16, talk about this. The same reality and truth exists for all people, whether you're Jew, Gentile, white, black, rich, poor, whoever you are, we are all sinners separated from God. He's just talking to Gentiles here. It's not as if he's neglecting the fact that Jewish people were also in their sins separated from Christ as well. And by the way, don't buy into these extreme forms of dispensationalism today that would say God has two plans, one for the Jewish people and one for the Gentile people, and he's going to, to execute these two plans. No, God has one plan. God has one plan, and that is for the redemption of all tribes, peoples, tongues, nations, languages, to be one people through one gospel, and that is Jesus Christ. 
We are all sinners separated from God because of sin. And it's only through the finished work of Jesus that we are all, those who trust in him, reconciled to God. And so if you're here today, no matter who you are, reality is, according to Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, Romans chapter 1 through 3, reality is that no matter who you are, you are in sin. That's, this, is, this is who we are, left to ourselves. By nature, we are children of wrath. We are unable, we're, we're unable to present ourselves clean before God because of sin in our life. We just can't do it. No matter how much you try to obey God, no matter how much you try to keep the law, no matter how much you come to church or read your Bibles or do this and do that in Jesus' name, so to speak, no matter how hard you try, you will fall short of God's standard, which is perfection and holiness. We're like, well, I can't be holy. I can't be perfect. I know that. Well, that's God's standard. That's God's standard. But the good news is, is that God has acted. God has worked on your behalf by sending his own son into the world to do exactly what he demanded of us that we never would do or could do. Yet Christ did it. He fulfilled the law. He obeyed perfectly. And yet he died on a cross so that he could forgive us of sin. And if you're here today and you do not know Jesus, you don't know that reality in your life, friend, the good news of the gospel is this, that even though you are a sinner, Christ died for people just like you, and if you would flee from your sin and trust in Jesus, you will be saved. You will be welcomed into the family of God. That is the hope you have. So friend, trust in Christ. If you don't know Jesus, trust in him, believe in him. This is what he's done for us. The gospel reconciles you to God. It reconciles me to God. But number two, the gospel reconciles us to one another. Again, there's no, I don't think you can point to an example in history of any greater spiritual, ethnic, racial division that existed that's greater than that of Jew and Gentile. And God has brought them together as one man. This is amazing. See that in verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, Jew and Gentile, both one. It's broken down in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. Verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself, what? One new man, one new man in the place of two, so making peace. Verse 18, for through him, we both, both have access to God. We both have access in one spirit to the Father. And in verse 22, in him you are also being built together. You see all of this language of unity. So you have this radical separation of Jew and Gentile, which was ethnic, it was spiritual, it was everything you can imagine. And the gospel shattered all of those divisions and brought them together as one. It's amazing. God did this through Christ. And so because of Jesus, there is one gospel, one family, one ultimate end, one ultimate goal. And that would be, we would be a kingdom of people for all of eternity made of people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. You go to Revelation chapter five, we see that. I read it uh, as we were praying earlier. You were slain by your blood. You ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom of priests. You get to chapter seven of the book of Revelation. John in there in verse nine says this, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one can number. Well, where were they from? From every nation 
from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. You get to chapter 19 and you see that great messianic banquet in which that great multitude is invited to, that great multi-ethnic multitude. Say that 10 times fast. God brought them together. What we're seeing is a glimpse of what it's going to be like in the end. God has done this. How did he do it? He did it by breaking down the dividing wall of hostility, by removing those obstacles to bring Gentile and Jew together. Those who were once enemies are now a family. Revelation 5, worshiping together. Revelation 19, fellowshipping, eating together. This is what we see. You think about that, friends. If that is God's plan for the end, I'm convinced that we ought to reflect it as much as we can in the present. What greater testimony to the gospel? What greater testimony to the pagan idolatrous Ephesians than to have this community comprised of Jew and Gentile brought together through the gospel? What greater testimony to the gospel than to have Jews and Gentiles worshiping together, fellowshipping together, serving together, eating together, living life together? Why? There's one savior, one gospel, one family. This is a, this is a reality that is true now. Sometimes we talk about the kingdom of God being kind of already but not yet. It's an already reality, but it's not yet in its full completion and its fullness. Reality of the kingdom now is that God is ransoming, ransoming people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. He's bringing people, he's drawing people to himself from all races, all backgrounds, all, all peoples. It's a present reality. The end of the story is that all tribes, tongues, nations, and language will be there in heaven, will be there gathered as his people. If that is true in the present and certainly will be true in its full form in the future, then racial reconciliation is not a hopeless cause, especially in the church. We know how, we know where it goes. We know how it ends up. We know that this is God's plan that he is bringing to pass. So in a culture, in our specific culture here in the United States, one that continues to be divided over these very issues of race, what better testimony to the gospel than for Christian fellowships and churches to reflect that kind of unity in Christ. You say, well, pastor, it's, it's, it's hard to do that. I didn't say it wasn't, but it's possible. It's certainly possible, only possible through the gospel. It's only possible for people who are different from each other. And again, this applies across all kinds of divisions, race, generation, socioeconomic, Political, what better testimony to the gospel, brothers and sisters, than to have churches filled with people from 
all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of race, all kinds of generational differences, all kinds of socioeconomic backgrounds, and yes, even churches that have Democrats and Republicans worshiping together. Only Jesus can bring those kinds of people together. But greater testimony to the gospel, to Christ, than to have that kind of gospel-driven, gospel-centered unity. In fact, it's only possible in the gospel. Only possible. The gospel shatters all forms of division. As I realize we have a lot, a lot going on in our nation. And while there's a lot that can be legislated, true racial reconciliation will never fully come from Washington. Helped, yes. Resolved, no. Changes in our communities, changes in our cities will not ultimately, ultimately, helped, yes, but not ultimately resolved by legislation and, and programs. The only thing that can get to the root of the problem, which is sin, is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which means as a church, we have no option. If we have the answer to the problem, and that's the gospel, we have no, no option to stand in sinful silence to these issues. And we have the very means to which God uses to bring people together. So what does that mean for us? Let me give you four points of application. Number one, it means we must pray. We must pray. We must pray for our communities, for our cities. We must pray for our churches in communities and cities to be faithful. We need to pray for government leaders and officials. Yes, they have a role to play. They can, they can do things that help. We have the, 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 the thing that ultimately will resolve this kind of division, that's the gospel. So we pray, we pray for churches, we pray for cities and communities, for leaders, governing officials, and we pray for the gospel to advance since it's the only way true reconciliation can happen. We pray for our church to be faithful here in our own community where there is clear struggle. Even right here in St. Mary's County, you'd be foolish to deny that. Right here, we need to be faithful, praying that we as a church, praying that other churches, faithful gospel preaching churches right here in our own community would be faithful in pursuing racial reconciliation and reflecting the diversity that gospel can bring. Friends, it would be quite easy to continue to be predominantly white, upper middle class congregation. But there are boundaries we must be willing to cross. We must be. The gospel clearly urges us that way. And those boundaries are ethnic, those boundaries are economic, those boundaries are social and generational. I mean, there, there are things that, I mean, there are all kinds of varying degrees of these boundaries and we don't have time to get into them today. And, and certainly we're talking about race, but, but, but there are even socioeconomic challenges even here in this community that we must be willing to cross. And in some ways, there's, there's a lot more that I have in common with a middle-class black brother that I don't have in common with a white person that's in poverty or a white person that's a billionaire and vice versa. There, there, I mean, all of these angles. The point is there's all kinds of divisions 
The gospel penetrates them all. It destroys them all. We must be willing to pray and to go. Pray for your own heart. Pray that the Lord would give you a radical love for all people. It's all of us have our own prejudices. No matter who you are, no matter what color your skin is, no matter what kind of background you came from, all of us, you would be sinning to deny that. Pray for your own heart. Number two, learn. If racial reconciliation is going to be pursued, all forms of diversity visible in our churches, then we must need much patience with each other, yes, but we need to listen and learn from one another. And friends, that only can happen in relationships. Read good books. I've recommended two Christian books this morning, Bloodlines and United. Get those books, read them. Have intentional conversations. Read other things you wouldn't normally read. Right now, I'm reading uh, a book um, entitled The New Jim Crow. Talked about mass, mass incarceration issues. You may not agree with all of the things in those books, but what you're doing is you're trying to listen, trying to learn, you're trying to understand because you've not walked in those shoes before. By God's grace, we need to do that. We're gonna have an equip class this summer on unity and diversity, talking about this very issue. We're gonna have an opportunity to go up to our partner church in Baltimore, Jesus our Redeemer. They're having a seminar taught by a professor from Southeastern Seminary on May the 20th on the gospel and race. Let's go together to things like that. So we need to learn. There are many things that you can do to learn. Problem that I have found, even in my own life at times, is that I've not been willing to even take this step. Oh, sure, I will pray. But learning is yet another step. Number two, number three, listen. James 1.19 says, let every person be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Again, we all have biases, we all have prejudices. That's just a simple fact and result of fallen hearts. We need to humbly recognize those. We need to admit that. Too often, we are quick to speak and slow to listen. We're quick to insert our opinion even when we've not carefully thought it through. As someone who has lived myself in a predominantly majority culture most of my life, all of my decisions, all of my perspectives, all of my thoughts are filtered through that kind of majority environment. And to be willing to take the time to listen to others who haven't lived in those kinds of shoes. It takes effort. There are just things I've not experienced, things I've not struggled with that our minority brothers and sisters have. I love what John Piper says in his book, Bloodlines. He said, he's talking about racial reconciliation requiring this humble listening. He says this, racial tensions are rife with pride, the pride of white supremacy, the pride of black power, the pride of intellectual analysis, the pride of intellectual scorn, the pride of loud verbal attack, the pride of despising silence, the pride that feels secure and the pride that masks fear. When pride holds sway, there is no hope for the kind of listening and patience and understanding and openness to correction that relationships require. This is what we're talking about. And then number four, pursue. If we're honest, it's, it's hard to pursue this, both directions. It's easy and natural for us to relate to people who are like us, but the gospel calls us to move beyond even our own pre pre preferences and comforts. We need to see others, not just through gospel lenses, but through the lens of creation. God made us all in his image. We are all image bearers. We're made in the image of God. Acts 17 verse 26 says, from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. 
In her book, United Trillion, Newbell says, understanding our equality as image bearers changes everything. Everything we think about human relationships. When you're, this just applies to any relationship. All this means that we are called to labor, to invest in others who aren't like us. It will prove challenging, it will prove difficult. At times, it will prove greatly humiliating because of the things that we have to admit even in our own hearts. We need to build relationships, practice practice hospitality. Listen, we can pray, we can have a day of emphasizing racial harmony, we can have equipped classes, we can go to conferences. But for this to be a growing reality, it must begin in your heart, in my heart, and even in our homes. That's where it will begin, and that's where it will have the most impact. We need to pray, we need to learn, we need to listen, and we need to pursue. As I closed again to quote John Piper, he said, to be a Christian is to move toward need, not comfort. Christian life means to get up in the morning and go to bed at night dreaming, not how to advance my own comforts, but how to advance some great gospel-centered cause. Friends, I can think of no greater gospel-centered or God-centered cause than to run hard after the gospel, making disciples of all nations as we anticipate that great multi-ethnic multitude that we see in Revelation. And this same gospel, this same gospel that would propel and send us to the ends of the earth, to send missionaries to make disciples of all nations by going to other cultures, the same gospel sends us out into our own community to do the same, to make disciples of all peoples, even right here in St. Mary's County. Question is, will you be faithful? Will I be faithful? And will we be faithful together? By God's grace, we can and we must for his glory. Let's pray. Father, it's, often difficult to consider issues that are such, that bring such tension, that bring such division, that are controversial, that are hard. Father, the reality is when we consider your word, it's not as hard as we think. It's not as tense as we might imagine when we just simply understand your great plan and we understand your great purposes for this world. So Father, would you help us Would you help us as individuals and would you help us as a church to not just talk about racial reconciliation, not just talk about the issues of our day, but God, that you by by your grace would infuse within us desire, passion, movement towards pursuing reconciliation with brothers and sisters, friends and family, with people that aren't like us because Lord, that's exactly 
That's exactly what you've done for us. God, would you help us to see, not as the world sees. Would you help us to act, not as the world acts, but Lord, that we would see and act as Christ would and as he does. Would you forgive us for where we have failed? Would you forgive us for, for being negligent and complacent and foolish? Would you help us to run hard after the gospel? Meaning that that would mean that we would run hard after people of all backgrounds, of all colors. That we would see the beauty of all backgrounds and all colors joined together for the sake of your glory because of what you've done in Christ. God, would you have your way in our hearts today for your glory, for the advance of the gospel and for the good of each other. We praise you and thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Today we're going to, as we wrap up our time together, we're going to come to the Lord's table and, and have the Lord's Supper together. And just as a reminder that as we do that, this is something that is for believers. And so if you're here today and you're not a Christian, don't feel offended, uh, but this is something that for those who have trusted in Christ, who have walked in, walking in faith with him, that we would invite uh, believers to celebrate together today. Uh, and so if you're a Christian, you're walking with Christ, you're not uh, walking, even the Bible would warn us, even if we are in Christ and we're walking in unrepentant sin, uh, that we should not partake of these elements. So we'd want to examine ourselves even to see where we are with the Lord today. But this is an invitation for you as a Christian to come and enjoy a reminder, to enjoy what we've been given through Christ. The moment the bread and the cup are going to be passed, and as we do here at Redeeming Grace, would ask you that as you receive the bread and the cup, that you would go ahead and take the bread as you receive the bread and go ahead and take it individually as a, as a token of our individual discipleship and the fact that we come to Christ individually. Then we would hold the cup and take that together as a token, as a symbol of our corporate witness together, that we are a body, that we are in Christ as a family. Here in Ephesians 2, Paul says, remember that you were at once, one time separated from Christ, having no hope and without God. That was all of our story. It's the reality for us all, that at one time we were without Christ and had no hope. But verse 13 says, you have been now brought near by the blood of Christ. And so today as we partake of these elements, that, that's what we're doing. We're reminding ourselves, we're being reminded as we take of these elements that Christ has brought us near through his blood. So the Lord's Supper is a reminder. Do this in remembrance of me is what Jesus told his disciples. Do this in remembrance of me. So as we partake of these elements, we are being reminded of his sacrificial death in our place. The Lord's Supper is a sermon. It's a visible sermon, if you will, proclaiming the death of Christ, the body and blood of Jesus, which is needed for our salvation. And it's also nourishment for our souls. As we partake of these elements physically, we were reminded of, of truth that, that calls us to renewal, that, that we are being sustained, not just saved by the blood and body of Jesus, but we are being sustained by him. So be encouraged as you are being reminded through these elements today. This time I'm gonna ask Rick Benefield to lead us in a prayer of thanksgiving for what Christ has done for us through the gospel. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you humbled, Lord, as people of sin, sinful nature. Lord, but you overcame that through the 
shed blood of your son, Jesus. Lord, may we be forever grateful. But Lord, as we walk in these days in this life, uh, Lord, that you would remind us of that daily. Lord, that sacrifice for our sin, the atonement that you paid for the penalty of sin for each of us that claim your name. Lord, bless these elements uh, as we partake. Lord, that uh, each one of us are reminded of that truth of Christ, our Savior. For it's in his name I pray. Amen.